In a year with no date, a young aspiring actress, Betty, arrives at the Hollywood bus terminal. She has come to the city to realize her dreams of making it big in the movies. Elsewhere, a car by night makes an unplanned stop along the roads of the Hollywood Hills. Its driver turns, pulling a gun on a dark-haired unnamed woman. There is an accident. The car plummets off the cliff. Somewhere else now, an earnest and nervous man sits opposite his friend in an unremarkable American diner. He explains the content of a nightmare he has had of this very place. He recalls seeing the face of a figure, a man, so horrific, so terrifying that he hopes never to see that face in the light of day. These are the mysterious opening scenes of David Lynch's 2001 film Mulholland Drive, an enigmatic, darkly disturbing story of film, fame and fury, of big dreams and smashed ambitions. Hollywood is a dreamscape. Hollywood is a land of nightmares. This is MoobTube, where Owen and Ralph talk about a film they've seen or movie because it's never been done before. So, Ralph, did you sleep soundly? Man, I I mean, lockdown, you have weird dreams. Just That's just that's, uh, par for the course. But um, yeah, this film, it's an incredible film. Jaw-droppingly good. I saw it when I... It was probably one of the first like n- weird films I've seen. So I was 15 when I first saw it and I was just, it was, I was staying at a, an older friend's house and he had all these DVDs and I was on my own and I just, I, I blitzed through it because it was on a bunch of lists of films. So I didn't really, it sort of, it was in my brain, but not in, quite in my heart. And then I didn't watch it for 10 years. And then last night uh, for this podcast, I rewatched it. And uh, so much of it came through. I, for, for about the first 20 minutes, I was really uh, sort of unimpressed and like not quite sure like what the point was. I, and I, but I sort of knew that like it, that there was more to it. And then everything, everything collects in this extraordinary way. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. It's because I Lynch Lynch means I was going to say men. Lynch means a lot to me personally. And then when I said he's an adolescent filmmaker, I don't mean him because I think he's a very deep, mature thinker. Um, mm. But there's a, there's a kind of, when I was thinking about it, there's a particular way in which like David Lynch is part of the, he's not part of the cinema world, like the kind of Hollywood film world in the proper way. You know, he's not a blockbuster filmmaker, definitely not. But he's not really a kind of comfortable companion, like a fellow traveler of like, um, of the world of art cinema, art house cinema. He kind of occupies his own category in part it's because he's got this very mysterious, occultic, obtuse um, symbolism and strangeness about him. So he really appeals to like, you know, he appealed to me when I was a teenager and watched things like a razor, mm. um, an elephant man. He's like, he's weird and he appeals to weird people. Well, we are weird. <laughs> we are weirdos, right? But that's the thing, he's treated with kind of like, bit dangerously and a bit you know like this kind of radioactive substance um he did get an oscar didn't he um not for this but like last year he got a 
lifetime achievement one which is kind of like hollywood's way of saying ah well we didn't actually rate any of your films but we think we should probably give you a pat on the back um for trying hard and so in this way there's a there's a temptation to see mulholland drive a film about hollywood's um mm. critique critical and it's kind of like critique negative critique of, of hollywood and it's tempting to think that but i i don't think it is that i think mulholland drive fits into the broader pantheon of, of Lynch's weird core films about America. Um, you know, in the same way that Twin Peaks is about the weirdness behind suburban normality, whatever normality means, mm. in the way that, you know, Blue Velvet is also a film about the kind of the, the dreamlike, un, you know, uncertainty and ambiguity that sits beneath the American dream. This yeah. is part, and for Lynch, you know, normal is an ideology. Um, and he flips shit on its head. So seeing as you've come back to this 10 years later, does, what, how do those two different viewings affect you? And, you know, do, do, do they mirror each other? Because it's a film about mirroring and doubles. They do, actually. I mean, I, 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 to add to your points about, about Hollywood, this is really Schrodinger's Hollywood film in that, like, it is to- it's so Hollywood. It's set in Hollywood. It is about the Hollywood industry. And yet it is a film that is unlike any film you would classically think of as a Hollywood film, formally, and in its approach to narrative. And yet, I, I swing back towards myself in saying that it uses classic Hollywood motifs. There is so much dramatic irony, so many thriller-like setups, mm. you know, the scene where the guy... Noir, uh, yeah. yeah, the sort of... It's almost Tarantino-like in the way that it borrows from, from various tropes of, like... Of, of, of Hollywood cinema, the, the, the scene where the guy um, tries to, it kills a guy and then tries to make it look like suicide and then accidentally kills someone else. You know, it's just- It um, has to keep killing people to, that, yeah, 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 yeah. to keep killing the witnesses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a, it's like a mixture of Groucho Marx style slapstick with a kind of, yeah, a sort of Pulp Fiction style, um, you know, casual violence. Yeah, a sort of hot, sweaty LA room. Um, it has uh, all these these amazing bits, like when they go into uh, Diane Selwyn's flat, and they uh, they discover the body and and the and the um, the, the flatmate who seems to have swapped flats, the neighbour, um, kind of peers comes back to the flat. She says she's just going to go and get something, and then she comes back and she doesn't know. And you're kind of wondering whether she'll go in and see them and whether she'll know what they've seen. And all these and that's things. Such a- are just- Deo Machina, right? Where so the phone rings at that key moment and she, oh, wait, I need to go and answer that. Yeah, it generates so much suspense and it's such a classic example. I mean, I, I did this in um, in a, an acting uh, workshop I did, a Meisner workshop. It has, doesn't really have anything to do with Meisner, but um, uh, there was a bit where someone was knocking at the door uh, as part of the exercise, but the person, the act, actually, this does have to do with Meisner, the act, the other actor who was in the room hadn't been told that someone would knock at the door. And so she just kind of stayed still. And uh, there's a good phrase in, in acting, you know, you, uh, you repress, I express. So if there's something that's, if the, if the actors are not doing something that you, that the audience clearly want them to do, then the audience become more and more frustrated. So if you're watching a phone ring, I get it every time you yeah, no one's picking up. Every time that you have someone on the phone, someone happens so much in Hollywood films where someone makes an important phone call, they ring up, the person says hello, 
and then there's a gap and you're waiting in that gap for the person to to announce themselves this film then is all about those gaps this film is all about those gaps and uses those gaps and use it and these gaps they come from hollywood they i mean not to not to be kind of um, imperial about it but you know hitchcock and um and uh howard hawks and like all the great classic hollywood directors built up these genre tropes and they made this language that's been influential around the world and and this film goes back to the the source and unfurls all these extraordinary devices well that's that's the thing because it deploys these tropes and they can feel like machine gun bullets coming out because it's one after another sometimes they're picked up as if they are infused with charisma and importance and significance for the plot and there's a reason i think for this but then to continue then like you know lynch drops them so the at the beginning of the film there is a car accident which i mentioned which is the character called rita she is the passenger in the car um the two drivers the driver stops attempts to kill her another car smashes into them they plummet off the cliff which is a again like this is a, a trope of hollywood films there was even i believe a famous film star in the 50s or 60s, possibly, who threw herself very famously from the Hollywood sign. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we're talking about films about Hollywood being a kind of mm. swallow of ambitions and swallow of hopes and dreams, as well as the theatre, which they realised, you know, this is a definite nod to that. But they plummet off the cliff, and then we get the scene where these two detectives are having this conversation. And it's, it's a beautiful scene because it's done really deadpan way. Um, and these two detectives are talking um, and it almost feels like they're going through the motions of reading a script because their, their words aren't really attached to their expressions mm. um, and then the character, one of the detectives steps forward and gazes over the city skyline, the night skyline of LA and it's just such like a powerful moment but then you think okay, these detectives might be our because usually in, in a crime procedure a noir film, you know, your detectives are you, they're the proxy for the audience and you you walk along with them to uncover a story they're the eyes yeah they're the eyes but you never see these guys again that's the end done Lynch drops them. <laughs> and it's such a good thing and like i said i think there's a reason for this which is the thing we didn't mention that Mulholland drivers was originally conceived as a tv series kind of similar to twin peaks and i think it would have been much much greater than twin peaks but the producers or network executives saw the pilot that you know, Lynch put together and they're like, nah, pass. <laughs> Which is, you know, <laughs> tragic in so many ways. And then so Lynch went back to the cutting room floor and was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, rather than waste this, I'm going to turn it into a feature film. Um, so in part, there's these ellipses and holes and gaps and voids and dropped threads in this film. And they're partly a product of the fact that he was planning to continue this. But it also really, really works. Um, in the context of having these just almost uh, oracular, strange uh, elements that bubble up to the surface and then dropped again. We're like looking at this dream soup of Hollywood. Do you want to talk a little bit about the actual kind of main meat of the plot, if that's possible? Yes. Um, so, so Betty arrives, uh, she's staying with her aunt. Uh, well, no, she's staying at her aunt's house. Her aunt is not there. Aunt Ruth. Um, there's a woman called Coco who is kind of um, uh, who's the neighbour who's sort of you know keeping an eye on her. She uh, says, "Call me Coco." Call me Coco. Yeah. About roles and 
identity. She has a name. She's known Call Me Coco. Call Me Coco, everyone does. She walks into the bathroom and she sees a naked woman in behind the frost of the glass. And this woman uh, doesn't remember her name. She sees a Rita Hayworth poster and decides to call herself Rita. Um, and a friendship forms between these two women. Meanwhile, there is a film being made uh, and it's directed by a man played by Justin Thoreau called Adam Kesher. And Adam Kesher is under huge pressure from a shadowy organisation pulling some strings to cast a particular actress called Camilla Rhodes uh, instead of um, another actor who he would prefer. And we see various, we see a meeting where this is made clear to him. We see uh, auditions and we also see a meeting uh, purely between him and uh, a cowboy called the cowboy who um, who puts additional psychological pressure on him. Initially, Adam rejects these mobsters' um, plans. You know, they say the decision mm-hmm. of the girl is not yours. And he, he, he fights back. Um, he smashes up their car with a golf bat. Golf bat? What is that? Uh, golf, golf club. Um, probably unwise, but fine. You know, he smashes up the car. Um, he smashes it up twice, as you observe, but we can talk about that in a bit. Um, he smashes up a car. Um, he rejects it. The funding for the film is pulled right there and then. People are dismissed from the set. Goes home, discovers his wife is in bed with some other complete stranger. Which almost feels like a psyop in itself, that he's being cucked. I don't know if that was like whether... Um... I think so. It can't be discussed because it's like the this this shadowy sub organization has tentacles into every part of this world. Like it, you can't extract Hollywood, like the criminality from Hollywood. They kind of co-create each other. I think it's kind of like the argument here. It's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. <laughs> exactly. And then, like, yeah, his secretary's like, "Oh yeah, there's this guy called the cowboy who wants to see you." Um. And actually, this is where Adam kind of breaks the fourth wall a bit, right? Because he acknowledges the absurdity of this situation and the performativity of this situation because he makes these cracks, these jokes about it kind of being like a, a trope, a cliche. He's like, oh, well, am I going to, you know, strap on my six shooters and go up to the corral? She's like, yeah, exactly. You need to go to the corral. This is where the guy wants to meet you. So it's this great moment where Adam acknowledges the, the absurdity of drama and the theatricality of Hollywood almost. But then just goes along with it, you know? He's <laughs> just like, fine, I'll yeah. go meet this guy. Because it's been that kind of day. Um, yeah, sorry, carry on. So yeah, he meets the cowboy. And, yeah, it's a great scene. Yeah, so that sort of, um, that moves things on for him. That that kind of, in, that's in a, a moment of enforcement. I think he's worn down by various, uh, you know, his bank, uh, his bank credit being refused, various things like that. Uh, meanwhile, there is um, uh, a journey um to discover Rita's, uh, Rita in quotes, uh, her past, who she is. She, she still doesn't remember who she is, but while in the diner, she sees a name tag that reads Diane. And she remembers that the name Diane Selwyn has something to do with her past. They go in a phone book. They uh, find someone called Diane Selwyn. They go to her flat. Uh, a woman answers the door and says that she's uh, 
Diane Selwyn's neighbour and that they swapped flats. So then they go and have a look in Diane Selwyn's flat where they find a dead body uh, that resembles both the photo that was shown with the name Camilla Rhodes and also uh, the woman who serves them in the diner. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think and, it's uh, definitely like implied that it could be anyone. Yeah, so Di- Di- um, Betty and um, Rita go on a bit of a journey. Uh, I'm skipping a few, one, two, skip a few here, but, um, but basically they visit a club and um, uh, where Silencio, where various, where it appears that people are performing live, but in fact they were performing to a recording, which obviously in a film is quite hard to discern because everything is recorded. Um, and uh, yeah, eventually my flatmate's chopping vegetables, if you're wondering what that sounds like. It's kind um, of some Lynchian, um, <laughs> sound effects to the to the episode, I like it. Quite hard to sing, it's quite hard to reconstruct the plot in lots of ways because there are so many reversals and U-turns and yeah. moments of, of mirroring. And the mirroring is interesting, like you said, and, and kind of like these amazing uh, logical jumps, you know, the sort of Diane and the Diane mm. thing is, but like if you, if you had had like this major head trauma in this car accident and you're going around and you saw a name that feels familiar to you, it's quite a log- it's quite an excessive jump to then hunt down this name in the phone book, go to their house. And, and even there, there's the, all these instances of mirroring and jumping. For example, yeah. they initially see that the name of the flat is number 13, I think, or 12. And they go there and it's a different woman who answers the door, who yet yeah, kind of looks like Rita sort of anyway, you know, similar mm-hmm. age, hair down to her shoulders. But she not says, oh, yes, yeah, not as beautiful, but there's kind of parallel, right? And, um, but then she's like, oh, actually I swapped apartments with her. There's another moment of swapping and people, and there's no explanation mm-hmm. given for you ever swap apartments with somebody who's like next door to you. That, that itself is just this absurdity of this, this swapping and changing. It's it. also it's quite swap- intimate, you know. I hadn't yeah. even thought about that. But yeah, that, yeah it's, it's such an odd thing. thing. <laughs> when I remember this film, I remember that for some reason, I remember uh, there being some kind of almost Freaky Friday style binary swap between the two <laughs> characters and That's while the I was watching while I was watching it I was kind of waiting for that swap to happen and of course it never happens and until no. until until it's already happened which of course is a classic dream thing right like you yeah because we're in a dream as I say, yeah as they say in inception you know you never find out how you got there in a dream you you always, yeah, you're already you're in the just there of action, already really. there so it uses that wonderfully it uses it wonderfully because we're, we're, there's so many points where Lynch alludes to us, sometimes alludes and sometimes says, slaps us in the face and tells us very like directly that this is a dream or the walls mm. between being awake and being asleep have, have crumbled and collapsed. The the real and the you know the kind of the authentic and the false have no you know kind of existential significance separate from each other in this world. Everything is kind of flooded together. The tropes of Hollywood that you talked about earlier. Mm. have mixed with the real life of LA as a city. Because, you know, at the very beginning, there's that um, chat in the diner, which I mentioned in the introduction. And again, yeah. these are two characters we don't see again. And that scene is like, it's great. It's such a good scene. You know, they're in this diner and the character um, is saying, you know, I had this horrible dream and it was in this diner. And he said, in the dream, I went outside um, 
I walked around the back of the diner and there was a man there uh, and it was terrifying and I, I hope to never see that person again. Um, mm. And then what do they do? They leave the diner together and they don't even mention it. He just They just start walking towards the back and mm. he sees this fucking guy again <laughs> and collapses or dies um, in this other guy's hands. And it's just like this witch-like figure covered in mud and glitter. It's very bizarre. And he kind of, yeah, he dies. So the thing he said, in the dream, I saw this guy behind the diner and then what we think is real life, you know, mm. he sees the guy as well. So it's kind of like Lynch saying earlier. So on re-traumatized. Re-traumatized. And it's also Lynch just saying, you know, the, there is no separation between the dream state and the wake state here. Mm. You know? Or we might just be in a dream. Yeah, so that that's said to us many times. And so, like you said, let's pick up that thread again. So we are at these block of flats. They find this body. They go to this club. Then what? Can we can we continue? Can we- so, so, so the two women become lovers. Um, they have this lesbian affair, um, which happens um, quite quite normally. Um, it's just quite simple. They, there's an intimacy that exists, and it's just taken one step closer. Um, and then, as the narrative moves, the next time we see them in bed together, they're or having sex together. Um, they are in the flat of Diane Selwyn, um, and then. Then it's a bit of a black hole in my brain, but I, I I remember there being a genuine a genuine swapping of the power dynamics where suddenly the there's there's a various wig wearing. Yeah, well she dyes her. Yeah, she wears a, a blonde the brown hair. Woman starts to wear this blonde wig, but her hair looks like Naomi Watts. Um, and um, and then yeah, there's a sort of scene where uh, where they go to a Hollywood party and suddenly the woman who we saw as being lost and uh and alone is is very popular very loved um and everyone at the party seems to have have something to do and someone to do and Naomi what's his character Betty who's now i think being referred to as Diane um is kind of uh, is kind of lost and the woman with the brown hair who was previously Betty is now Camilla Rhodes and the photo of that we see later on in another scene of of a, of a headshot of Camilla Rhodes is now a photo of um, of the woman we now think of as Camilla Rhodes. So there's an amazing so there's an amazing feeling here of again of cucking actually of um, of like terrible you know almost being naked at a party being you know seeing seeing everyone in love with someone else. Yeah, Betty has been this kind of waif like um, uh, naive ingenue. Um, throughout the film and she's been the kind of star as it were of this this her own film her own movie um you know mm. she comes bright-eyed bushy-tailed ready to seek her dreams weird shit happens and then now that the film has flipped she's suddenly in this position of like morbid terror and depression mm. you see her the flat which is flat 17 which is diane's flat where they previously found the dead body and it almost implies that this is a separate, a parallel universe, right? Because in this world, she's not with, she's hopelessly in love with Diane, um, who's now Camilla. (laughs) 
Diane <laughs> Camilla isn't interested in her anymore. She's actually dating Adam Kesha, the filmmaker. So when she goes mm-hmm. to the party, like you say, there's this cucking moment where they're hopelessly in love and laughing and Betty is the butt of their joke. You know, she sees people whispering and looking at her um, Coco. And another another woman appears, Coco appears as Adam's mother and uh, and another woman appears who I believe is the woman who we initially saw on the Camilla Rhodes headshot and in the bar and and auditioning she leans in and and has a a a very sensual kiss with the new with i don't say the new that's that that doesn't do it justice but the the camilla that we see in that moment um and so betty now diane is um is kind of in in the worst in the most terrifying position of being alone seemingly forever and then she enters a kind of frenzied classically lynch like sensory audiovisual overload uh, in which she is kind of uh, being taunted and bullied by the very friendly older couple who she got to know at the airport when she arrived. Uh, And this, I think, points to what I I most want to say to my younger self um, and what I most want to take away from this second viewing of the film, I think, as a filmmaker. Uh, because I remember being very influenced by David Lynch um, uh, when I was uh, when I when I was I was watched all of his films in quite a hurry. I was I was kind of aware that he was the guy that makes odd films, but you know, there it was before I delved so much into European cinema, um, and um, and obviously you know I wanted to make dreamlike films, and I watched these films and I made I, what I took away from them was the discomfort what I took away from them was the uncanny the eerie the threatening uh, sometimes this kind of ego id taunting cucking vibe uh, but I didn't reflect on and or reproduce the compassion and the humor and that's something that I was really struck by this time so many of the scenes are funny so many of the moments between people are are full of compassion. I mean, the way in which Betty pursues, uh, pursues she, the way she treats um, Rita throughout the first section of the film is with such compassion and such love. There's a kind of sisterhood. There's a there's an immediate there's an immediate caring instinct there, uh, even though she's kind of yeah she's sort of lost. It. She's kind of naive in a way. The way she arrives at Hollywood, she doesn't know all the all the nefarious workings of that world, and she's so prepared to give her heart to the people she meets at the airport, to the Coco, to to this random woman that she sees in her bathroom. Quite weirdly, um, she gives her heart. Yeah, she gives her heart to these people. But there's a deep there's a deep compassion to Lynch, and I think people like you said people kind of don't see that, and it, it it's displayed in if you go back to something like um, Elephant man right i'm a human being mm-hmm. in that. it's a weird dark dangerous nefarious world but there is a space for deep amongst that ugliness there's a space for compassion and tenderness and understanding it's like when you read an email that has a complaint in it and you there's lots of nice stuff and you only ever remember the the negative stuff yeah that's the bit that stands um, out right i think that's you know lynch is saying this is an ugly world and when i said earlier he's not i don't think lynch is here going ugh Hollywood's just corrupt and evil and it just destroys people's dreams and hopes. He's not saying that. And also he's a fucking filmmaker. He's made a lot of money from it. Of course he's not saying that. Um, he's making a, it's not, so in that sense, it's kind of not really about Hollywood. Hollywood is just this perfect dream space where reality and non-reality have merged together in this, pa- it's like, I was always thinking like it's a spatial thing. This it, Hollywood is this 
accumulation of falsities. Mm-hmm. And it, they went so heavily on the ground of Hollywood that it's almost created this like occult space where anything is possible, as they say, right? So mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of this space. And he's using that to explore things like identity and hope. And there's an interesting anecdote I was reading about Lynch is that when he was first setting himself up as an artist, because he was originally a fine artist before he turned to film. Um, and uh, he moved to Philadelphia and he moved to, like he bought this little house in Philadelphia, which he admits was in a really kind of run down, dangerous area. I think his house was burgled like 10 times or something. And on the night he moved in, the window was shot out. Um, and he's like, it was, he was like, I'm not going to lie. It was a scary place to live. Um, but he said, it's probably influenced my filmmaking more than anywhere or anything else. He <laughs> says that, that it's like, that's interesting that he found in his space that scared the shit out of him has stayed with him. And he had a happy home there. And I think Lynch is doing that and he's carving out this, this amazing world of mirrors and smoke and obscurity and obscenity. And it's like, like I said, there's so many places where it's funny. Like even so take the witch character, this mud soaked, glitter covered, nightmare fuel character. It turns out he's kind of important. He's like he's like almost like the skeleton key for this film in a way, literally, because he is the holder of this blue box. Um, and there's a blue key which echoes throughout this film. It's the blue Rita is in possession of a blue key. Um, uh, it, the blue key unopen, unlocks, presumably, it's like fucking playing Doom. Like the blue key unlocks the blue box. Mm. Um, and it's kind of like Pandora's box in a way, because at the end of the film, we see the witch-like character open the blue box, drop it to the floor. And we might, we might make a kind of crass assumption to say that the blue box represents people's dreams of, for Hollywood, you know? It's everything, everyone wants to find out what's in this fucking blue box and crack its secrets and open it and get inside it. He opens this box and coming out, it's this amazing little bit of like Lynchian trickery where coming out of the box in this kind of sped up stop animation style, uh, the old man and woman that Betty meets at the bus at the beginning. And they're kind of like partying and like airport, sorry, yeah. And they're kind of like jumping and dancing and gyrating out of this mm. box. That's how they get into the house at the end and torment Betty. They, they get bigger and bigger, crawl under the door, mm. and then they're suddenly scaring the shit out of her. So it's almost like, yeah, the, they were the, they were the, they they are the boatman that led them, led her over the river Styx into Hollywood, mm. and through the kind of you know rose tinted glasses of Betty at the beginning, these figures are compassionate um, guardians. Here they're fucking tormentors. I just think that's interesting. I kind of forgot that they were the same. Yeah, there's so there's so much there's so many motifs. I mean, even the cowboy appears later on at the dinner party. I mean, it's just sort of, um, it's uh, yeah, like there's, there's an extraordinary towards the end. Everything collects. I mean, I said at the beginning things collect, but like it, yeah, it all, it all. There's a coherence that emerges, a great beauty. Yeah, he says that because when when the cowboy talks to Adam Kesher, he says, "If you do good, you'll see me one more time." If you do badly, <laughs> see me two more times. And lo and behold, we see him two more times in the film. Um, What's the other time? I can't remember noting it down when I was watching last night. There's another time uh, he appears. Uh, he appears to someone. He might talk. He might be at the film set, maybe. But he's, yeah, he does appear twice. So in, in theory, Lynch is alluding to Adam having done bad, <laughs> I think. Um, 
so there's a, there's a topic I want to I want to explore here, um, which is the which is meaning basically. Um, so in the in the in the 2002 DVD insert which I have, there's a list of ten clues, uh, which are reproduced on Wikipedia. Uh, I won't list them all. They include um, pay particular. Pay attention to the beginning of the film. At least two clues are revealed before the credits. Uh, who gives the key and why? Notice the robe, the ashtray, the coffee cup. They're all, I think, basically um, red herrings. They're all like really weird kind of... They, they, they suggest that the film is some kind of uh, code that needs to be deciphered, which I, which, which I reject. Um, I reject uh, It's like a dream. Yeah. There's a summary on Wikipedia of interpretations. Uh, it says Neil Roberts of the Sun and Tom Charity of the Time Out subscribe to the theory that Betty is Diane's projection of a happier life. Roger Ebert and Jonathan Ross seem to accept this interpretation but both hesitate to overanalyze the film. Ebert states there is no explanation, there may not even be a mystery. Um, Philip French sees it as an allusion to Hollywood tragedy while Jane Douglas uh, from the BBC rejects the theory of Betty's life as Diane's dream but also warns against too much analysis. <laughs> Um, it goes on and on there's Idiot. various people there, it's a mixture of people being like do you know what this actually means that and then other people being like well yeah. you know, that's not do you know what it, really. it's like it's like the analysis you know this is the 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 kind of Freudian you know kind of uh, false step where you or, or like a crass Freudian perspective where you think ah, things in the dream must symbolise you know if you see spiders you're going to come into a lot of money um, if it snows it means this whatever it means you know you're horny on main I don't know <laughs> I mean, this is a question of allegory, isn't it? Right, like what? Like it made me think actually of the Seventh Seal. There's an amazing, um, there's an amazing scene in the Seventh. There's a scene in the Seventh Seal that everyone knows of the of, of uh, the knight playing chess with death, you know. And it's like, you know, what does the what does what does death represent? Death represents death. Death is death. That's it, you know. Like there is, there's very often not much more than what there is. Um, and what there is is, but you just have to be able to feel what there is because that's kind of yeah. what's happening. Lynch is not an allegorical filmmaker. He just he looks like an allegorical filmmaker. He's not. He's not a symbolist. The film is so yeah. full of symbols. We should be suspicious of that. It's not because Betty in the first part of the film, or Betty, as it were, the thing which leads Betty astray is her desire to unpick a mystery, which has there is no mystery to unpick. Um, as we all know, really, the narrative is relatively simple. You know, Hollywood can be very soul crushing and defies our expectations and dreams. It's quite corrupt, isn't it? Um, there's mobsters who control it. Uh, you know, that's kind of the, the narrative, um, it, which is basically the narrative of real life blown up to epic proportions through the tropes of Hollywood. Um, mm -hmm. And so Lynch is like, a, you know, a blue key, a blue box, a mysterious cowboy, room swapping, um, you know, all these clues and symbols in the film, there are so many of them that be suspicious. I think it's all, it's very film studies, A-level, to sit there and go, right, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to figure out what this film means and I'm going to create, I'm going to complete the puzzle by putting all these things together because I think that's that you're falling foul, kind of, David Lynch is like, um, you're, you're reading, you're taking a surface reading of it, which is, which is pretending to be deep and isn't. Well, it becomes quite cult-like, doesn't it? Because he's basically like, he, but he's kind of throwing a, a bone in the wrong. He's throwing his coins in the in the wrong direction. He's, he's throwing. What's the phrase? Throwing off the scent for many of these people. 
because he's throwing us off the scent. Yeah. He gives all these um, clues about red lampshades and, and and coffee cups and stuff, and and actually, um, you know, you you end up missing out on the film if you fixate on those details. Um, there is there is in all of of, of Lynch's work almost all of Lynch's work, the sort of the, the, the more, the most Lynchy Lynch films like Blue Velvet and um, uh, Eraserhead and um, and Lost Highway particularly, there are frequent uh, male figures who represent, I mean the word represent kind of trips me up there, but um, male figures who are fucking terrifying. Yeah. Um, they are, they are, they are going to fuck your wife. They're going to beat you up. Um, they don't give a shit. They're more confident than you are in yourself. Like um, Bob in Twin Peaks is this roving figure of evil. Yeah, Mr. Eddie in Lost... I haven't actually seen Twin Peaks, but yeah, Mr. Eddie in Lost Highway, uh, Dennis Hopper's character in Blue Velvet, um, yes. in Eraserhead. In Head, I guess everyone is kind of just making the, the Jack character feel, um, uh, feel kind of spooked out. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, I, I know it's a, a hideous alt right phrase, but I've used it ten times already. There's a lot of cucking. There's a lot of people being intimidated <laughs> by uh, people who are who are just. And I think that yeah, that's a, that's there's motiveless. a huge um, yeah, they're like, they're just... motiveless bull yeah bullying and 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 sort of intimidation. And I think that's like again, it's it's he maps onto the fears and desires. Of, a, of the society he portrays. He's really into transcendental meditation, is David Lynch. He's like, he is, yeah. he's, he's become this kind of ambassador for, for TM, so it's TMTM. Um, it's kind of weird in a way, because it's not something I'm really aware of. And the only, as a public figure, it's the only way I'm aware of Lynch really. You know, you just see him pop up occasionally in a slick advert talking about TM. Um, mm kind of makes sense because this is a guy who is actually, you know, you think from his films, you would come away with a feeling that Lynch is a paranoid, scared man with a very cynical, evil worldview. But he actually seems like a, just a really content, nice, I mean, obviously appearances can be deceiving as his film tells us, but he seems like quite a content man with a quite strong worldview. Um, and in a way, he's alerting us to the importance of, 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 of kind of like, overcoming these paranoias and fears and rejections, this cucking, as you call it, like overcoming this motiveless evil. Um, why is it motiveless? Because maybe it's a projection of our own fears. It's a creation thing of our own creation, you know, in Twin Peaks, um, Bob is a, you know, Bob operates not through the material world, as it were, he has to uh, take possession of a person and becomes them and commits horrible acts like uh, murder and rape through the body of the citizens of Twin Peaks. So mm. literally speaking, he doesn't exist. It's the people of Twin Peaks doing it. Um, Bob is just a representation of evil, you know, in a way that Satan is, is the embodiment of, of timeless evil across cultures. You know, he's the convenient fool guy for our own sins and evil. Um, and that's kind of the case in, you know, in... Um, Mulholland Drive because you know where is the evil in this film exactly the mobsters like why are they so fucking insistent on getting this girl in the film like it's kind of like there's it's never you normally in that kind of film where there's like a mobster doing something you get a bit more of an insight into the mobsters right 
and you know there might be a reason why they're doing it. Here, there's no given reason. They're just they're so they're willing to murder, kill, uh, disrupt the you know attract the attention of the police simply to get this woman appearing in the star role in this film. Hmm. Well, why only gets you so far? You know. Yeah. Yeah. They true. they off people say like, the question why you know you ask. Um, you ask why enough times and you end up with just either like God or, you know, why is the sky blue? You know, like, well, well, why is, why is the, why is the river blue? Because the sky is blue. Why is the sky blue? Because some scientific thing to do with it. And why is that? Well, you know, you, you just, you, it doesn't, it doesn't do. To, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't do. You know, my scientific knowledge is fucking. Yeah god awful so um, there's but, like you a know, sky it, it and there's a yeah. sky and it's blue because uh, of like photosynthesis or something um like it doesn't it doesn't do to ask why because i uh, because well if you're as stupid as me it certainly doesn't but um you know like that's the, the artistic sensibility is kind of has a kind of acceptance of these things you know i mean mm. in my experience of like um the kind of treatments that are of a the sort of um advice that's available for intrusive thoughts and OCD you know it's like you do have to just accept a lot of things that you initially find unacceptable and it's not about feeling okay so much as feeling okay about not feeling okay and I think um, I have not done very much meditation because um, I'm currently able to not go too crazy uh, without it uh, although I think probably I'll, I'll probably have to do more meditation as I as I get older, um, Lynch has done fucking tons of meditation. Uh, I think he meditates for like an hour every day. Um, uh, maybe, maybe two on um, maybe two sessions. I think it's quite a rigorous program you do. I mean, Russell Brand's talked about it a bit. Um, but basically, um, he's opened up his unconscious. He's seems to be un, uh, un, un, uh, unaffected by dogma you know unintimidated uh, I mean, I'm sure, and, yeah. yeah i'm sure he has political values but he doesn't kind of uh you know he's not he's not distraught at the at, at keir starmer or anything like that you know he's not sort of he hasn't got a kind of um, you know he's not he's not torn up his um to yeah he's not torn up his um you know labor membership card or something no indeed this, um nor have this I, is um whatever i haven't yet well, i can't remember i, I misplaced mine um they're but you're right they <laughs> I think um, they are really, they are really They're like crazy. a piece of salad, there's a piece of like duct tape that you fold basically. Red almost, red. almost like they want you to um, tear them up. Anyway, um, talking about, you know, that kind of the meditation aspect is that, you know, and one thing a lot of, just, you know, I used to do a lot more meditation, you know, one practice you're taught by DT Suzuki, you know, taught when he was kind of transplanting Zen Buddhism to, to the West Coast in America in like the, you know, 60s, 70s. It's the idea that you let you don't dismiss unruly, unwanted, intrusive thoughts. You let them. I think the metaphor he uses is you let them float to the surface, like they're in a pond, and you you regard them for a moment, and then you let them disappear again. You, you know mm. they'll come and go, and it's this kind of it's kind of that kind of noise that can kind of apply to the the technique of watching model and drive in a sense because to pay to obsess and fret and to throw yourself into unlocking the meaning of all of these symbols and and, and allegories and other metaphors is is to kind of plummet like face first into that pond and drown in it um yeah. whereas you haven't 
and let them flow up and down and away. And the level of perception that Lynch kind of wants you to have of the film is a little bit elevated above it, really. You know, it's not to, not to be, the reason he drops the fucking detectives, maybe, and they're not our characters, is because we have no use for detection here. Mm. I suppose the difference between this, this and a more conventional narrative Hollywood film is that it is, there is more of a kind of uh, a context and a backdrop uh, and, a, and, a, and a set of re- a set of motivations attached to uh, what what you see on screen, but somehow, and this is what's so impressive about this film, Lynch manages to build up the tension and suspense that you would get in a film noir out of uh, merely kind of un- sort of unconscious level fears and desires, and he does so using i mean basically when you have a bad dream like why why did you have a bad dream the reason is or like why did why did something happen in the dream that made you fearful it's not necessarily because you fear that thing it's no. just because you are fearing it's taking um, on shape, shape it takes you know or, or your fear of that thing is or... kind of it's kind of not really like like tomorrow you might be scared of something different you might have gone over it you know it's 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 about the forces of fear it's about how humans sometimes feel in danger um yeah and and yeah he doesn't he very gracefully doesn't ask why but he builds up this incredibly compelling um balance of yeah of of, of human experience and, and 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 as i said before like it's 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 a uh, bookmark earmarked something marked it's it's rudded in the in the it's um planted in the ground it's grounded by um that took a while uh, it's grounded by <laughs> these these moments of compassion between Naomi Watts' mm. character and uh, you know when they when they kiss it's actually extraordinary when they kiss i mean it's very very sexual very erotic very it's very erotic uh, really it's hot. Really ten- but it's, it's also really like tender, so right? yeah it's so it's such a natural thing for that to happen between them it doesn't have well like the scene bond. where betty does a reading with a she's called to a reading um and in the, the kind of waiting room as it were she performs this bit of script kind of uh, off the cuff um, and she performs this bit of script uh, with the actor who potentially she'll be starring with in front of the director and other people. Mm. It's such an in- emotionally charged, intense scene. And up to this point, Betty's given you no reason to believe she's good at acting in any way. She, you know, cause the, the trope is that she's this uh, naive ingenue and might actually be, you know, She's going to have to fight her way to the top, but she—it's really it's seen as yeah. It's entirely possible she might be a bit shit like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. But it's an incredibly compelling scene. Like she, she acts the shit out of it, um, and it draws you in and it grounds it and centers it. And like you said, there's this, this, te- there's this territory of of desire and fear, um, which kind of might appear like some sort of dream cloud, and that's what the film is formed out of these kind of temporary accumulations of, of, of projections, you know, detect, wandering detectives, car crashes, diners, scary witches, uh, nightclubs, all of this stuff. And then occasionally it, it, these moments of complete tenderness just pierce through it, pierce through that cloud. And I think that's, that's the most lasting thing of that film. And it's what I remembered from watching it the first time. 
it, like a dream, like trying to recall a dream. I was really surprised when I, because I watched it maybe five years ago for the first time. And when I was watching it now, I was like, shit, I don't remember any of this. But I do remember these moments <laughs> kind of coming through. Mm. Um, and I think that's quite telling about what he's trying to allude to, maybe. Yeah, the hope in her eyes, the kind of, it's, there's a, like a beautiful, graceful naivety of, of the, the Betty character and in, in her sort of her eager to pleaseness and her, you know, I'm just a, a, a girl from uh, down river, Ontario. And uh, now I'm in this dream place. I think, Oof. yeah, it was a film, man. I, cause I, I think I text you when we were watching it. I was just kind of like, Lynch is so fucking underrated. Um, <laughs> he's quite well he's quite well regarded but is <laughs> when he you said though, that I was like, like <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, like this is like about? this is like but I don't think he is you know I think he is like Lynch is like I said he's kind of treated like this this you know when I became a man I put aside the, to- you know, the toys of my youth it's- yeah it's true I did I had that attitude because I, ha- I literally haven't watched a David Lynch film for like many years because of that thing that it, it, I associated it with the films I made when I was 15 or 16 yeah. and and they were kind of dark and dis- and uncomfortable and awkward and weird and yeah. eerie. And I, yeah, like your, go for your emo phase. Yeah, <laughs> I'd taken from Lynch all the dark stuff because that was the stuff yeah. that lodged in my and brain. That's... Yeah, and actually what un- anchors it. Anchors, that was the verb, the metaphor. Yes. What anchors it is, is these bonds and these connections. And that's the true in, in all of his his good films. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true because all of them, you know, like I said, Elephant Man these moments of compassion, you know, when he's having tea and they're just like, yeah, I'm, I, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I'm emotionally uh, repressed in so many ways, but you know, it brings a tear to my eye watching Elephant Man, which is, you know, um, unusual oh. for me. Like, you know, I actually feel really moved by watching something like Elephant Man. I feel very moved by Lynch. And I think he has to, to obsess and to lose yourself in the, in the forest of fear and danger and violence that his world evokes and conjures up is, is you're kind of missing out on the best part of him, which is kind of getting through that forest and finding this, this beautiful clearing of peace and tranquility and, and love and tenderness. Um, and he does it in he does it in such a beautiful way because he's not trying to reinvent a language, even though he has. He's saying, "I'm going to do this, but I'm going to use the tools at my disposal." As you know, mm. 21st century filmmaker, so you know when you watch Twin Peaks, is basically a telenovela, right? And he's like, "I'm going to use tools of network TV to create something that fucking transcends it." And this is the same. So I'm going to use, he's basically, it's kind of like the plot of Sunset Boulevard, right? And he said, I'm going to take Sunset mm. Boulevard, Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, and I'm going to take that. And I'm going to take all of these Hollywood cliches and tropes, and I'm going to create something that elevates all of them. Be obvious, not original. It's like that. Give the audience what they want. Like, he just does it. And it's it's so, yeah. I think, I think I've run out of, of analytic words i just this is the best film we've reviewed um, by far the best film we've reviewed i was so happy because you know when i was sitting down to watch it i was a little bit anxious about watching it because it's like i'd had it yeah really me long. too and i was like oh fuck i have to i le- left it to the last possible minute which is last night to watch it mm-hmm. and there's any other night rather than me sitting there like playing playstation 4 which is what i've been doing for like five nights previously i was like okay i actually have to watch this film tonight um and I was so relieved to realise how good it was. You know, <laughs> me too. How how should, what should we say to conclude? Uh, ten out of ten to use a really reductive. Yeah, two two thumbs up. Two thumbs up from me, Ralph. Double penetration. 
<laughs> spit raced of films. Um, it makes me watch um, the one film I haven't uh, seen by Rich. Um, Which is? Inland Empire. Oh, that's also, well, not the one, not the only one I haven't seen, but um, but yeah, it is one significant one I haven't seen. I, 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 I've heard too many iffy things about it to want to watch it, but probably I should. Um, I more than anything want to rewatch Lost Highway, which which Lost Highway was one of my was like my favorite. That like was like my second favorite film, my first favorite film, Stalker. Wow, <laughs> my my that Lost Highway was, was my second favorite film for ages. Uh, now I don't uh, put films in lists because I'm very uh, progressive. <laughs> That's how isn't it weird though? Because um, how I first encountered the, the I think I didn't see this, but I think. First encountered Lynch was through one of those similar lists. And when I first started watching a lot of film, when I was like, I guess like 16, um, like mm. properly sitting down and watching film, I think I found one of those lists, you know, and it's like the best 100 films ever made. And it's very easy to kind of shit on those lists because they don't mean anything because it's very subjective, but they are kind of quite good. They mean a great deal. Can I can I just defend lists? There was an article in an, in another gaze by Eleanor Gorfinkel, which I didn't read, but I could tell what it was saying by the way people were tweeting about it in a positive way because it's the sort of sentiment that sounds progressive. But uh, God, I I sound so arrogant. Anyway, lists are important, and I really think that the canon. Like the canon is important and what you do if you're unhappy with the canon is you change the canon because that's the only way people are going to discover art. If, if you think yeah. the canon's too white, bring some non-white people into it. Like, uh, yeah, so. you know, we can't, we can't just start, especially now that new voices are being heard, we can't suddenly abandon the idea of objectivity no, make- and, and become postmodern and, 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 and sort of uh, abdicate the question. Um, I think we need lists more than ever. Yeah, because those can be lists, they can be progressive lists, they can be lists of, you know, the new and emerging and progressive filmmakers, but they're also just really good for your film literacy, you know, talking as someone, you know, who's even come from a well-educated background and stuff, um, and had no idea this, like, films existed in this way, to come across a list of films that, you know, introduced me at 16 and blew my mind, you know, you come suddenly watching mm. Tuber. Kurosawa oh. and Tarkovsky and Ingmar Bergman and again oh. it's a, you know very oh. white I male love list, men but, yeah I love men <laughs> but that got me onto they're good at making films aren't they they're making good at, everyone's good at making films everyone I think actually making films is really easy Ralph um, I've been doing this podcast now for, with you for two what two months um, I think actually films are right easy and I could um <laughs> make a better film than any of the films we reviewed. Mm. Is lockdown the only thing that's stopping you? Uh, fuck. Lockdown is... Lockdown's made me really productive, actually. Yeah, that's true. It has, actually. It's made us very productive. This podcast is a product of lockdown. I'm very glad about it. If, um, we'd just be insufferable at film screenings. <laughs> if it wasn't yeah, exactly. Um, so instead, we're, we're insufferable yeah. on Zoom. <laughs> on that note... <laughs> I think we've been running for an hour, but I think fair enough because it is a big film. Um, but yes, thank you to our listeners for for bearing with us, and I'm really proud of this episode. Uh, Love it. I hope you hope you got something from it. Next week we will maybe we'll review eight and a half. That was something you said to me on WhatsApp. We talked about eight and a half. Eight and a half is such a fucking joy to watch. Um, yeah. I know we just talked about reforming 
you know, revising the canon. But maybe we should revise the canon and not review eight and a half. What's eight, eight and a half, half though? though? It's a great film. <laughs> Uh, All right, we'll favorite. figure this um, out amongst ourselves. Okay. Thank you for listening, listeners. Um, okay, peace be upon Bye. you. Bye.